0: This episode of the Art of Manly's podcast is brought to you by Vrbo. Struggling to find the perfect vacation home? Keep getting lost online, watching surfing dog videos? You need Verbo. They do the hard work for you, matching you to the perfect place to stay every time. From condos to cabins, places with yards, grills, or hot tubs, they've got it all. My family's use Verbo to rent places in Vermont when we go there during the summer. It's fantastic. Search VRBO in the app store to download the Verbo app today and put a stop to frustrating vacation searches. Let Vrbo find a home that matches you. Check it out. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. According to recent statistics, the number of Americans dealing with anxiety disorders is over 40 million, and that number is increasing. My guest today is one of those Americans who's suffered from bouts of anxiety all of his life. He's also a successful journalist, so he decided to use his journalistic chops to explore the history of anxiety and how he treated in the hopes he could gain more insight about the mental disorder that has plagued him since his youth. His name is Scott Stossel. He's an editor at The Atlantic and the author of My Age of Anxiety, Fear, Hope, Dread, and the search for peace of mind. We begin our conversation discussing Scott's experience with anxiety that began as a child, what anxiety feels like, and how he's treated it throughout his life. We then dig into the history of anxiety, looking at how it's been viewed differently through time, and at what point psychologists classified it as a mental disorder. Scott then walks us through the different theories about what causes anxiety and what the research says about the best ways to treat it. And we enter our conversation discussing the state of Scott's anxiety today, and whether he thinks he'll ever be cured. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is of anxiety. Scott joins me now via clearcast.io. All right. Scott Stossel, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, you wrote a book, My Age of Anxiety, which is a cultural history, a scientific history of anxiety, which is. Something that a lot more Americans are struggling with, they are reporting struggling with. But not only is this a history, it's it's a narrative of your own struggle with anxiety throughout your life. So let's start there. How long have you been struggling and dealing with anxiety? It's honestly
1: been pretty much a lifelong struggle from a very young age. I mean, the earliest I can remember, you know, I had terrible... Acute separation anxiety when I was a little kid. You know, anytime I was away from my parents, I was convinced that they were dead or had died in a car crash or that they were, you know, actually robots and had I was part of some experiment. And, you know, and then by the time I got to school, I would have anxious stomach aches and anxious headaches, and I'd always end up in the nurse's office. I would worry incessantly about all kinds of things. So really from the time I was my my earliest memories, I remember being worried about things. So I I have a I think a a, a temperamental tendency towards anxiety and worry that manifested itself at a very, very young age.
0: And did it manifest itself differently as you, you know, over the years, as you got older? Yeah. I mean, the separation of anxiety, and this
1: is, that's sort of a classic early manifestation of people who grow up to develop, you know, what's clinically called anxiety disorders. But over time, you know, I sort of developed specific phobias, you know, fear of heights, fear of enclosed spaces, fear of cheese and fear of vomiting, Fear of flying, which was a, a pretty acute one, that still plagues me today. I also, as I got older, started developing, you know, started having panic attacks, which, you know, anyone who's experienced them knows are, are are awful. And when they recur with any frequency over a period of time, you know, that's that becomes clinically known as as panic disorder. So I had that. And then when I got to you know middle school and high school, I had all kinds of social anxiety, where I worry about interacting with other people, particularly. You know, performing in public, I would you know, I was in the school play in sixth grade, and it was humiliating. I had to walk off stage because I lost the ability to speak, and so th- and then I carried all that with me. You know, into adulthood. You know, basically these these anxieties were unfortunately additive, not substituting. You know, I wasn't like switching one for the other. It was just every time I got a new anxiety, I would just add that to the ones I already had, and so by the time I got to you know high school and then young adulthood, I was. Not all the time, but pretty constantly struggling with some collection of fears about going to school, traveling, getting sick, dealing with other people, and you know, having the strain of dealing with that would lead to depression. So it was it was a, a pretty toxic stew of negative emotions I was dealing with by the time I was a
0: young adult. Right, one two punch, and I imagine, I mean, you're still. I mean, we'll talk about it. you're still working with this stuff today, but like you're, you know, you're a public, you you're a writer for you know the Atlantic. I mean, you're a public figure. I mean, has that I mean, is it still something you struggle with? And then like the fact that you have to do speaking engagements or things like that, is that something you have to manage as well? It is. And, you know, I'm I'm what they
1: call, you know, I'm a high-functioning person I, 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 with anxiety disorder. I mean, there's some people who get so anxious that they you know they're what's called agoraphobia where their you know their panic disorder gets so bad that you know the, the the range of things they can do gets smaller and smaller and eventually there are people who are you know confined to their houses or even confined to one room in their house and can't do anything for years at a time and i've had periods like that fortunately short periods where i could feel the the world sort of closing in on me but for the most part with a combination of medication other kinds of therapy and just you know, sort of force of will, sometimes have managed to you know mostly manage to you know live a normal life and 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 have a, a career, you know. And there are ways in which, and I talk about this in the book, in, in which you know anxiety has its benefits, or at least it's it's connected to temperamental traits that are that are good. So if you're super anxious about things, you know you're kind of hypervigilant, which makes you. You know, good at scanning the environment and being aware of your social situation and sort of being able to read social cues. I mean, people with social anxiety probably overread them, but it can be a useful skill. You know, preparing worrying a lot can be debilitating if it's excessive, but it also helps you to plan for different eventualities you can kind of look ahead. You know, I think that just the the struggles I've had with with my mental health have made me more empathetic towards other people who have those struggles and even to people who don't have those struggles. So I think it helps with communication. So there are a lot of ways in which even though I hate my anxiety when it's, you know, flaring up, it's probably propelled me along and it just it makes me conscientious because I'm afraid of screwing up, I'm afraid of looking bad. And that becomes kind of a, a a motivator. So you know, a lot of times I feel like I'm kind of patched together or barely holding it together because my anxiety is so bad. Or you know, I'm I'm sort of pharmaceutically armored against against my anxiety, and that's how I've I've struggled through. But yeah, and it's, and I still struggle with it today a lot I and mean, we can talk about that more later if you want but I ha- I've been fortunate enough to manage to you know mostly be a productive member of, of society
0: well this book came out 2014 so it's been five years you're seeing all these reports come out you know week after week about how Americans particularly young Americans and you know young Westerners right in general are increasingly feeling like they're anxious or they're suffering from anxiety what are the numbers like how many Americans do we know like have a reporting being anxious they're they're really high. And there was a study a couple it
1: was before my book came out, but but some years ago that talked about how, you know the, the average level of anxiety for a typical high school student now, self-rated report of anxiety, is the same as it was for inpatient, you know psychiatric patients in the 1950s. So basically, you know the average kid today is as anxious and neurotic and miserable as people who are in you know, in in psychiatric hospitals uh, a couple generations ago. And then there's all kinds of other, you know, statistics that just show levels of stress, worry, anxiety, anxiety disorder diagnoses, you know, are much, much higher in young people, you know, pretty much across all Western countries, you know, particularly there's there's a lot of data about Europe and the United States. In the U.S., I think, I mean, there's so much data that, 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 you know, this is something real. I think part of it is, our definitions of what constitutes, you know, a, a clinical anxiety disorder have expanded and become a little bit more elastic. Partly because we know more about these disorders, and so people now can identify them. Partly because you've got now drugs that have been approved to treat them. So you've got kind of the marketing imperatives of the drug companies. You know, the the, the broader you can define, more broadly you can define an anxiety disorder, the more people you have um, that you're able to prescribe it to. So so partly this is inflation of a diagnostic category. I think in any society there's a you know, some complement of people who will be anxious, you know, under many circumstances. But I also think that there are a lot of factors about the culture and the society right now that are driving people and particularly young people to be more anxious. And, you know, at the largest kind of societal level, it's, you know, we're in a long period, really going all the way back to the industrial, dawn of the industrial revolution, but, you know, accelerating now in the internet age of just, you know, rapid change, economic dislocation, all kinds of transitions. There's just a lot, you know, the the pace of life because of the internet, the way people, you know, select themselves into tribes, the the pressure to create your own personal brand on the internet. There's just so many sort of countervailing pressures that confuse young people about what their identity is. And, you know, in, in, in centuries past, you were kind of born into your role. You, your, your family had a status in the tribe or in the medieval village you lived in, or even, you know, in, in your, you know, farm village in the, in the 19th century America. Now, you know, you, you who are you, you know, what's your, you can choose your gender. You can choose your sexual preference. You can choose your, the groups you affiliate with socially, and all of this creates a lot of stress. And then the last factor I would say is just there's been a lot written about this. You know, particularly people in the millennial generation and younger, there's so much you know helicopter parenting, and you know, parents are super involved and you know driven and trying to make their kids succeed. But the combination of like overprotectiveness and trying to, you know, and, and, and pressure to achieve is really toxic because on the one hand, these kids feel all this pressure to succeed and do better than their parents and get into good colleges or, or do whatever. And at the same time, the parents are doing things for them that parents of previous generations wouldn't. It sort of robs them of their feeling of autonomy and resilience. And it, it's really sort of an epidemic thing. And I've talked to a lot of psychiatrists, you know, both for the book, but then also just you know people I've come to know who are now friends who are psychiatrists or therapists and they and they see this as just kind of an epidemic phenomenon. So all those factors kind of combine to create soaring levels
0: of anxiety so let's let's talk. you mentioned you know there's sort of a cultural component to anxiety. It's not that like it's a you know anxiety is a cultural construct, right? like it it exists, it's biology root in biology, but like the culture has an influence. you know, for example, you know ang- the diagnostic of Anxiety disorder didn't exist 35 years ago. Like, I'm older than that, right? I'm 37, 30. How old am I? 36. I, don't <laughs> know. I forgot how old. I, at, some, at some point, you, you stop counting how old you are. That's um, right. Yeah.
1: Because of the defense mechanism.
0: Right. But that doesn't mean that people weren't anxious. So, like, what did we call anxiety, like, say, like 2,000 years ago or 100 years ago or even 50 years ago? Yeah. No, good question. And it's been called all different things. I mean, obviously,
1: the emotion that we feel or the set of emotional and physical. Experiences you have in your body when you are feeling what we now call anxiety, you know, have humans have experienced since there were humans? You know, what did they call it before they were, you know, in preliterate times when they were cavemen? You know, they made it, a, they didn't have a concept of anxiety, but when they went out of the cave and they were worried about getting eaten by a saber toothed tiger, you know, their palms would sweat, their hair would stand on end, their stomachs would hurt. Like that is anxiety. Even in animals, you know, the fight or flight response is a sort of evolutionary the, you know, programmed instinct to help keep species alive. So what we call anxiety today sort of, you know, emanates from that deeply rooted evolutionary biological reality. But over the years, you know, different cultures have, and, you know, science has called it all kinds of different things. So, you know, for many years, you know, in the Renaissance, they would group anxiety, what we now call anxiety and depression together under, you know, melancholy if you were, if you, if you suffered from what, you know, you were, you were worried about things or you were, had depressed, you were called melancholy. You know, once you get into the 19th century in Europe and America, they would call it asthenia. And it was meant to describe, this described a kind of set of traits that was a combination of physical things. And it could be like dizziness, sweats, you know, gastrointestinal problems and emotional things, you know, phobias, worry, a whole, and basically could encompass anything because, you know, your anxiety is, you experience it in your brain, but it has effect throughout your body. So neurasthenia is what they call. It. you know, getting into the Freudian age, you know Freud became very influential through the through the twentieth century, particularly into the mid mid twentieth century. And you know he would he he talked about what we today call anxiety as neurosis. And it really, that was just sort of a I mean, he had a different theory of what caused it, you know childhood, sexual, you know, repressed sexual desire, conflict with your parents, the the edible complex, which a lot of which has sort of been debunked now. But but as a kind of cultural. Medium, the idea of neuroses became very prominent in the culture. So that was kind of through you know, World War II up until, really until 1980, when the, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is the Bible of the psychiatric profession, they, they redefined the neuroses as anxiety. So you, technically, you know, anxiety disorders didn't exist when you were born, and they didn't exist when I was a little kid. I'm 49 now. So You know, for the first ten years of my life, and I was starting to get taken to psychiatrists. They would say I have, you know, childhood, you know, neurosis or something like that. It's now been redefined as anxiety. So the, the the labels we put on this do kind of inflect how we think about them and how we treat them. But it is the same underlying set of, you know, you you and I, or I speaking for myself, I would be feeling the same set of unpleasant. Thoughts, emotions, and physical sensations—whatever age I was in, and whatever we choose to call it—just now we, we
0: we classify them as anxiety disorders, right? And the way we describe it, and the way we talk about it, has changed. Like, for example, in the Renaissance, melancholia—like, yeah, you were sort of depressed and anxious, but like it was sort of romantic too, right? Like it was like, well, you're this like ponderous, romantic person who's thinking about big thoughts, and so it was actually there was like a positive spin on it, but then like Freud kind of saying, no, neurosis is bad. We got to, you know, solve your neurosis by sitting on a couch and talking to a therapist over and over again until you, you solve it. So there's that sort of swing back and forth between, yeah, there's some good and bad, but then like, oh, it's all bad. Yeah. And, and there, there's, and there's often been,
1: and you referenced the, the Renaissance era, you know, this sense that, you know, having melancholy is attached to having an artistic or refined or sophisticated sensibility. And it was actually seen to be sort of a desirable trait. You know, if you were, melancholic it meant you were creative and artistic and must be very smart. And sometimes that you know there they're, they're, this is contested you know among actual experts about whether is there a link between mental illness of various kinds, including anxiety and depression and creativity. You know, so many famous writers, for instance, and and artists have had you know very prominent psychiatric disorders or or alcoholism or things like that. You know is that is there an alliance between the things that make you anxious and depressed and the things that give you a kind of artistic sensibility. Maybe there's like I say, different different people dispute that. And you're right that the the sort of cultural interpretation we put on anxiety changes. And you know, one thing in particular, you know, as a man, you know, that this has been changing recently, but there there's a lot of shame associated with, you know, is anxiety cowardice, you know, and is and cowardice is shameful. You know, there's not no almost no worse epithet you can sling at a at a man than being a, a coward or whatever. And yet, and, and it's, but suppressing this stuff or not treating it can be very dangerous. And so, you know, instead of going to a therapist, a lot of people turn to alcohol or drugs and 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 basically try to manage their anxiety in very unhealthy ways that can be quite
0: dangerous. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more because I'd like to talk about stuff like Navy SEALs and neuropeptide yep. wide and whatever. But you know, so talking about the, the current diagnosis of anxiety, I thought it was interesting you, you explore the DSM and how they kind of came up with it. And we've talked about some other people when uh, we talked about uh, you know depression, how a lot of this stuff, it's sort of like ad hoc. Like it was, there was like, this when I threw spaghetti at the wall or sometimes there's like dinners and they're like, well, here are the five things that we think that you can use to diagnose anxiety. Like it often seems very arbitrary sometimes. It's, it's often completely arbitrary. I mean,
1: I was fascinated when doing research for this book and hearing some of these people talk like so the people who did the last edition a a previous edition of the dsm you know every every you know 10 or 20 30 years they they reissue a new one and they were when they introduced all the anxiety disorders for the first time that was in 1980 with the dsm 3 the third edition and yeah that you know i i would hear people who are part of the committee that that came up with the categories and yeah they'd be like sitting around and they, they would have come up with you know a definition for like panic disorder. But even that was arbitrary. They'd say, well, if you have, you know, it's, it's, if you have six, I'm trying to remember, if you have, you know, X number of panic attacks over a period of six months, well, then you have panic disorder. Well, why did they choose six months, like instead of, you know, a year or two months? And why X number of panic attacks instead of Y? And the more interesting one was then they were talking about, well, we've got all these different kinds of anxieties categorized into discrete. Disorders. So you've got, you know, phobias, which is fear of specific things. You've got social anxiety, which is fear of social situations. We've got panic disorder, which is panic attacks. You've got OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder. But then what about? So they're at this dinner and they're like, well, what about our colleague, you know, Joe? He's just sort of generally anxious. And they're like, oh, well, let's come up with something called generalized anxiety disorder. And so they wrote that into the third edition of the DSM. And then once it exists as a real category, then researchers and drug companies start to Treat it as a real thing, and they, you know, do studies based on the sets of symptoms that you're supposed to have if, to be to be characterized with that disease, and it starts to become sort of reified into, a, you know, like, well, you're you're testing for a thing that you made up in the first place, and again, it's not not that the underlying suffering is not real and not there, but is generalized anxiety disorder really its own separate disorder, or is it as some people now think? Just a subset of depression, you know, or depression with anxiety. You know, people who are depressed often worry a lot and get sort of sucked up into their own head. Well, that's what people with generalized anxiety disorder do. They just worry incessantly and kind of spin in circles in their in their head. Being very anxious can be depressing. So you know no, no wonder that anxiety and depression are so often you know co-occur in people and then and then many people with depression experience anxiety, so it's unclear how these things really, you know, in the DSM, they're, they're very neatly cleaved from one another. So, you know, this disorder is distinct from this, that disorder. A lot of people are now starting to think maybe, especially as they start to look at the neuroscience of this, which is still in early stages, but maybe this is all kind of variants of the same thing. I imagine like a hundred years from now, when scientists look back, they may think that our, our categorizations of these things are, are, are
0: pretty crude, but they're the best we have right now. Right, like when we th- think about how people talk about neurostinia. Right. Well, that's, that was kind of silly, or hysteria. You know, hysteria. You know, was a it was
1: a sort of you know, particularly for women. But it was there was some. You know, what what was that? Was that a cultural phenomenon? Was it a, a medical phenomenon? It was kind of both. And these things always intersect. And I, that that's always interesting to me. Like how do when you have a real you know biological thing that gets interpreted culturally, that's fascinating and and really does change how we. Treat and think about people who have these disorders,
0: and I imagine it can cause a lot of confusion and frustration for people struggling with it. Like, they're going to help, <laughs> and they're getting inconsistent diagnoses from different like because, like you know, one therapist was like, "Well, you have this, but not this, so you're this," and it's like, "Well, what am I? Like, what, what am I supposed <laughs> to be doing with what I? How am I supposed to go after what I have?" Yeah, I, I, after my book came out, I had a lot of people
1: say that, or, you know, versions of that, that they, you know, struggled a lot. But in general, I would say, you know, most therapists, that there's a lot of agreement and it may change, but, you know, there there are certain things that there's emerging data about what works for kind of all these things or many of these things. So for instance, um, there's a form of therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is basically a combination of, you know, helping people to change, you know, change their thoughts to make them less maladaptive, you know, break the cycle of negative thinking and sort of reality test in a better way. You know, people are worried about things who have you know generalized anxiety disorder, they always see the worst case scenario. And cognitive behavioral therapy helps you restructure your way of thinking so you can see things in a more realistic way and then help you change your behavior and exposing yourself to the things you know, if you have anxiety, exposing yourself to the things you're afraid of to kind of decondition you from the fear. There's a lot of evidence over now, you know, more than a decade, that that kind of therapy can work for all kinds of anxiety disorder, for obsessive-compulsive disorder, for depression. So there are things that work. And then there are certain medications. I mean, medication is, you know, we may talk about that. That That's a whole complex, stew where my sense is you know, medications can work, but there is a great mystery about how they work, when they work, who they work for, what the downsides are. But there are some studies and, and a lot of evidence that suggests that for some people, certain medications can help them with their anxiety, their depression. So even though we're still kind of groping around for you know proper definitions and everything is
0: kind of these categorizations are messy there are things that that are generally believed to to, to work We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. 10,000 offers the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable shorts you've ever worn. And exclusive for AOM listeners, you can try a pair for free, a pair for free at 10,000.cc slash AOM. From hit to running to CrossFit, they have you covered with three premium training shorts built for all the ways you train. Best of all, 10,000 lets you choose your own length and liner so you get your perfect training short. And we're scrolling through hundreds of identical options. They're so confident that these will become your new favorite training shorts. They'll let you try them free for 30 days. Wear them, wash them, work out in them. If you love them, pay for them. But if you don't, send them back within 30 days and you won't be charged. But with over 1,000 plus five-star reviews from real customers, it's clear as you guys are going to love these shorts. I love these shorts. My favorite short is the interval short. What I love most about these things, it's got the, the liner sort of like a compression short, which I love for doing squats. It's fantastic. You can try any short yourself in the gym, on the trail, wherever you train, free for 30 days, but you got to go to my special address. It's 10,000.cc slash AOM. Every order gets free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. One more time, 10,000.cc. Not.com, 10,000.cc slash AOM to try a pair of shorts free for 30 days. Also buy on. It's time to check out the latest running craze. It's called On. On was born in the Swiss Alps with one goal, to revolutionize the sensation of running. The entire company is based around the idea of zero gravity running and On has quickly become the fastest growing running brand in the world. What makes On different is its emphasis on a clean and minimalistic design as well as its sole technology that gives you the sensation of running on clouds. Yes, on clouds. These shoes are so comfortable you won't want to take them off and they have a full range of shoes and apparel to power your full day. On and off the trail, I've been sporting a pair of their CloudVenture water. These are a trail shoe. First off, it looks really cool. It's a clean design, it's got a nice tread. It's super lightweight but very durable, waterproof, and yes, it feels really good. It feels like you're walking on a cloud, very very comfortable. I think it's going to be my go-to mud run shoes from here on out. It's the Cloud Venture waterproof. Now, here's the thing. My listeners can try a pair for yourself, it's free for 30 days. So you can put them to the test to see if you want to keep them before you buy. If you're not convinced, send them back for a full refund. But here's what you do. If you want to get this offer, head to on Dashrunning.com/manliness. That's on-Dashrunning.com/manliness to test the on shoes or gear firsthand and experience what running on clouds feels like. One more time, if you want to get this, try this free for thirty days. Go to on-Dashrunning.com/manliness. Go check it out. And now back to the show. And yeah, we'll we'll talk about medication because that's interesting as well. Because that's again, it's like the coming with the, di- the how we define and diagnose anxiety. A lot of the the medications developed were very ad hoc. And we'll talk about it because it's really interesting as well. But let's talk about like what causes anxiety because like some people will look at it. Well, it's just like a choice. Like it's like, you, you can just snap out of it. Like, you know, get get your get yourself together but there's also evidence that says no there's there's a genetic component to well so what, what's going on when what what causes anxiety there are it's, it's it there are multiple
1: causes but there is a very strong you know there's tons of evidence that there is a strong genetic component you know and j- just about everybody has some adaptive predisposition to experience you know have a fight or flight response to have a fear response but there are some people who because of their genes are born with you know what psychologists like, call a temperament that is more highly reactive and so it's literally you know the the, the genes in their you know their, their DNA and codes for a physiology that is more high reactive. And so those people, you know, just, and you can detect it in babies, you know, you can often tell the ones that are going to grow up to have, you know, anxiety disorders because they have uh, more exaggerated, what's called startle responses. You know, if you, if you make a loud noise or flash a light at them, you know, you can see their, their heart rate increases more, they sweat more, they have, you know, electric conductance and their skin is greater. So it literally is at some level you can't control it. It's, it's, it's deeply, deeply wired in and, you know, scientists are starting to look at the various, you know, clusters of genes that that lead to that. So some people are just born with a ready press predisposition to be anxious. But then on top of that, there's kind of the environmental factor. And there's also tons of evidence that, you know, and this is where Freud wasn't wrong, you know, early childhood experiences have a profound impact on your psychology and your sort of mental resilience, psychological resilience for the rest of your life. So people, kids and adults who are exposed to trauma, you know, it changes your brain chemistry and even your brain structure in such a way that, you know, this is what PTSD is. You're, you're now much more prone to anxiety and depression, you know, panic attacks. So, you know, it's, it's a gene environment interaction. And there are some people who, are born with such an anxious predisposition that even small stressors are going to send them into spiraling anxiety or depression and make them develop a disorder. There are other people who are going to be much more resistant to it. But with, you know, even those people, most of them, or many of them anyway, if exposed to enough trauma, you know war or you know, something horrific in, in childhood, will develop the elements of an, an anxiety disorder. And then overlaid on top of that, as we were talking about earlier, they're kind of the cultural and social level stuff, you know, are there certain cultures or periods of history that are more anxiety causing than others? And, and I think the evidence suggests that, that there are, but I think the strongest contributor by far is, is your genes. You know, there, there are some people who are just have the misfortune to be born highly anxious and some people who are born sort of more serene, but, you know, as with all human traits, then environment plays a role too. So,
0: yeah. Well, you talk about even in your own family, anxiety seems to run, run in your family.
1: Yeah, so you know, when I was both in my therapy, but as I was researching the book, you know, I was trying to figure out, well, what is the source of my own anxiety? And you know, my mom, you know, super high worrier, had a lot of phobias, which I got from her. You know, and did I get them from her by watching her? Did I learn them from her, from from environmental, or or is it you know genetically encoded? And then her you know parents you know both had kind of elements of you know had worrying personality traits her grandfather my great grandfather you know had struggled terribly with what they then called anxiety neurosis and was institutionalized in psychiatric hospitals you know many times again he had a very successful career was a smart accomplished guy but then would just get completely incapacitated by his anxiety would have to go to the mental hospital and, and get electroshock therapy to kind of get his brain reset. And then, you know, I've got other relatives who struggle with this. So, and then, and then studies show that once you have, you know, some number of anxious people in a family, it just, you'll find many, many more. And, you know, is is that transmitted by environment? You know, did I learn it from my mom, from watching my mom, from watching my grandparents? Maybe, or was it transmitted through my genes? Well, probably that too. And you can never, you know, completely disentangle them.
0: Well, yeah, going back to that idea that some, that you brought up that, you know, for men, anxiety can be like a, a slap in the face. Cause like, look, if you have it, like you're a coward, but like, you know, we were talking about Navy SEALs. Like some people are born with a predisposition to be very anxious, but some are born with just like, they're just, just water off a duck's back, right? Like Navy SEALs, they've done research on them where they found like they actually have a genetic predisposition to be hyper resilient, even in super stressful situations. Exactly. I, I was fascinated by that study. So I mean, I, I
1: Navy SEALs are really interesting to study because they're such extreme, like human specimens. You know, and to get to the point where you you know get through Navy SEAL training, it's like you must be a you know incredibly physically fit, and then they put you through these physical hardships, like sleep deprivation and you know incredible hardship. And you know, the, the physical part is hard enough, but these guys, you know, they, they're they're able to withstand almost like a form of you know torture. That would cause you know me or many other people to just kind of break down, and so there's a guy at Yale who was studying you know what what is it that makes these guys so resilient, and he he was actually looking you know he would take I think it was from their blood samples you know measuring different neurotransmitters in their brain, and, and he found that the, the the Navy SEALs who succeeded in in doing the Navy SEAL training had a unusually high levels of something called neuropeptide Y. And, you know, basically if you have a high level of, and and they could actually predict in advance to try to determine cause and effect, like is it, you know, finishing the course that like gives you a boost of confidence or something that causes your neuropeptide Y to rise or do you have kind of a natural baseline level of it? When when they looked at, at, these people in advance they could almost predict how they would do on the test by their levels of a neuropeptide Y in advance and there are other studies that show that neuropeptide Y you know your levels of that are kind of genetically determined or at least partly genetically determined which you know to me is powerful evidence that your level of psychological resilience is you know conferred by your genes which you know allows you to produce this neurotransmitter that makes you unusually psychologically resilient but what psychologists now are really interested in studying, and in the military too, is you know how can you cultivate this in non-genetic ways? You know, we many of us would benefit from being more resilient. So are there things that we can do through therapy or through life experiences that boost our levels of neuropeptide Y, or that create the kind of psychological structures in our head that are associated with neuropeptide Y and that make us resilient and resistant to anxiety? traumatic stress, that that kind of thing. And it's a really promising area of research. You know, it's 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 basically taking focusing on the people who are the least anxious and figuring out how can we use what they have going for them, both in terms of how they think and what's in their brain to treat people who you know are particularly non-resilient or highly anxious.
0: Well let's talk about sort of the history of treating anxiety. So you mentioned earlier, right now, there's a lot of promising research and you know studies have shown that cognitive behavior therapy can help mitigate or help people manage their anxiety. But besides that, what are some of the other ways as far as therapy goes and we've used to try to treat anxiety disorders? Well, so these days there's
1: there's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's more more traditional talk therapy. I mean, CBT is kind of a form of talk therapy, but you know more of what you think of from the movies, which is you know just talking to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a social worker or a therapist of some other kind, you know psychodynamic therapy that's called. And there's a lot of evidence that just you know talking to someone who listens sympathetically to your problems, has some training in you know both helping you solve basic life challenges, but also, you know, helping you resolve childhood issues. There's some evidence that 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 works. And then there's medication. And, you know, going back really millennia, I mean, you know, if you read, you know, the ancient Greeks or, you know, even Hippocrates, you know, the sort of original, you know, most famous doctor in history, you know, talks about, you know, how wine can treat anxiety. And, you know, for years, people have been using alcohol and opium and things like that to medicate, Anxiety, but you know, just going back a hundred and some years, th- there have been sort of waves of different things that have been used to treat, you know, particular anxiety and then anxiety and depression. You know, way back at the turn of the 20th century, you you had kind of barbiturates and other sedatives that were used to treat anxiety. Then around mid-century, you had the dawn of what are called the benzodiazepines. So that's Valium and Librium, and these days you have Clonopin, Xanax, Ativan, even Ambien. Um, that work on your, you know, a set of neurotransmitters in your brain called GABA, that basically calms your brain down, and that can be very effective in treating anxiety, but very de- uh, dangerous too in terms of its addictive potential and you know, the tendency to form, you know, habit uh, and dependency. For depression, you know, there have been different waves of drugs. There was the, you know, wave of, of what they call the tricyclic antidepressants. Tricyclic just describes the structure of the of the molecule. That I mean, these were things like imipramine, desipramine, and then in the 80s you had the first what's called the SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And the first one and most famous one is Prozac. But these days you've got Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft and Selexa and Lexapro and a whole bunch of others in that category and, and related ones too that affect serotonin and norepinephrine. And basically all these drugs work on different sets of neurotransmitters to kind of you know augment their levels in the brain in ways that we still don't fully understand how they work, but seem to have some efficacy in, in reducing anxiety and reducing depression. And I've taken a lot of these drugs myself and some of them seem to work and some of them don't. and Some of them have terrible side effects. The depressing, Thing about a lot of this is that, you know, most, m- many, a lot of treatment just doesn't work. You know, it takes a lot of trial and error. You know, therapy can be effective. And I would encourage anyone. Who's suffering with these things to you know seek out treatment because um, it, it can be a lifesaver, but it can sometimes. Sometimes it takes a few tries to find a therapist that you like or a medication that works. And if you look at the long-term evidence, you know really it's like a third to a half or something of any treatment works, and it's not always clear why the thing that's working is working. And, th- and that's why CBT is probably the best evidence has the best evidence in its in its favor, and it also has in its favor since it's not a drug. It's not addictive. It's not dependency forming. It doesn't, you know, and, and ideally you can kind of learn the, the the skills from CBT and take them with you through your life, you know, and keep practicing them. Unlike, you know, if you, if you're on a drug and it works, what
0: happens if you go off the drug? Sometimes you're going to have, you know,
1: withdrawal issues. So.
0: Yeah. It's a lot. Of, so, I mean, I think you brought up an interesting point that anxiety sounds like it's something that you can't really, you're never going to be cured of it, right? Like you're always going to have to just, just manage it for, for most of your life. I would love to be able to be cured of it. And I still, you know some of the time
1: with you know ten percent of my brain, hope that I could be you know to achieve like complete serenity. and not that there won't be things that scare me or that I don't you know worry about legitimately, but it's not something that plagues me. And I think you know some people, they get really the one thing I didn't mention is is you know mindfulness practice. These days, there's tons of evidence that the practice you know various meditation skills and practices and 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 other forms of mindfulness really can help confer the kind of you know resiliency and calm that say neuropeptide Y does in these navy Navy SEALs. And you know, so I in my therapy I've tried you know a combination of CBT with trying to do meditation stuff. So so I think it is and you're not cured. You're you're always gonna have your underlying genetics. So if you're a high reactive person, someone who is prone to be nervous about things, that's probably always going to be the case. But you can reduce you know the amount of it and you as you say you can learn to to manage it with different sets of skills from whatever kind of therapy you're using or to manage it with medication or to, you know, sort of adjust your lifestyle. I mean, sometimes if you're anxious or depressed, that's your body and your brain telling you something's not right in your life and you need to, you know, make some changes and sometimes having a better lifestyle. And all this obvious cliched stuff that people tell you is true. You know, it's really important to get, sleep you know for me if i if i'm underslept my anxiety goes through the roof it's for me also and tons of studies support this regular exercise i mean these are basic things that don't cost anything you don't need insurance for but in modern life it's sometimes hard to work out regularly it's hard to get a good night's sleep when you've got deadlines so all these things you know if you if you do them all you can actually minimize the effect that anxiety has on your life and there's always going to be i mean for me you know there's things that erupt that cause my anxiety to spike but when i'm doing well i can both have those spikes be fewer and farther between and also when they happen, manage them better and not have them, you know, send me spiraling off the rails or, or you know, sort of over-medicating my, myself. So there's a long-winded way of saying, yes, you know, if one can learn to, to, to manage them and if, and if you can do that, then you can live a pretty, you know, fulfilling and rewarding life that's not, you know, the constant misery that anxiety can sometimes be.
0: Right. I think that's hopeful because, I mean, if there's if there's a strong genetic component to anxiety, you know, people who have that problem, they're listening, they're just like, well, crap, Um I'm hosed. That's, that could be the approach or it could be like, well, okay, this is the thing. I got to work with it. It's not great, but I can manage it. There's things I can do. Yeah. And I mean, I, when I, I remember talking to my therapist when I was sort of learning about my great
1: grandfather and all the terrible troubles that he had had and then multiple, you know, hospitalizations. And I was like, God, you know, he reminds me so much of myself and I have, you know, his genes and this, I'm doomed to this. And my therapist was like, first of all, he's your great grandfather. You have like a tiny fraction of his genes And second of all, you know, there's medications we have now that he he didn't have access to that can help you. And, you know, there's just lots of stuff that you can do. You're not, yes, genetics is powerful, but you're not doomed to your genetic fate. And we can learn to cultivate resilience. And a lot of the therapies that are effective, like I say, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, but just in general, you know, facing your fears. And I'm, you know, it's easy for me to say this and sometimes hard for me to do, but the more you, you know, if you have specific phobias like fear of flying or fear of public speaking, the more you do it, the easier it gets. And that's sort of a, you know, simple lesson, but it's, it's, it's true. It's just, you know, for me, sometimes those things can be so anxiety producing that I can't do them. And then I feel like it's a setback and my anxiety gets worse. But what my therapist always tell me is, you know, get up, persist, do it again, and you will get better. So right. Exposure therapy. I think that's what that exposure is. therapy. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So if you have fear of heights, they'll take you up on higher and higher buildings I mean, you know, sometimes the, these treatments sound kind of extreme. Like if you have severe claustrophobia, there's actually therapists who will put you in like a coffin and, you know, you have a horrible anxiety, but then you just wait it out and you realize I didn't die. You know, I'm okay. I can manage it. It was just a really unpleasant emotion. You know, for for people who have flying phobia, there are pilots who will take you up. A lot of airports have programs where you can go and, you know, get walked around the plane by a pilot who um, explains how the whole thing works, you know, and basically Little by little, expose yourself, you know, sit in the plane, then go on a short plane ride. And you know, eventually, hopefully you can be flying to Europe without being completely miserable, as I've sometimes been on on
0: international flights. And I think that's an important point for parents who might have children who are, you know, hypersensitive or super anxious. You know, oftentimes when you're a parent, you're like, well, I just don't want my kid to freak out. So I'll just avoid the thing that, you know, causes them lots of anxiety and gets them worked up. Rather, the better approach might be, well, just sort of slowly introduce that thing over and over again so they don't get scared. They're not scared of it or doesn't worry them anymore. That's absolutely right. And I think that's really important. And what
1: I'm about to say may sort of sound paradoxical, but it's it's not. You know, if you think that there's all kinds of evidence that suggests that if you think your kid might be developing, you know, unusual level of anxiety, you know, what could be, a, you know, clinical level anxiety, the evidence says, you know, if you, the earlier you can get help and get them therapy, the better, the better outcome they'll have, the less likely they'll be to you know suffer anxiety disorders as an adult, so early intervention is key. But early intervention doesn't mean sparing them from anxiety. And you know what almost any therapist today would tell you is actually, you know don't. And this is where you know it's the antidote to helicopter parenting. Don't try to do everything for your kids. Don't try to spare them the unpleasant experience or the thing that's making them nervous. You know particularly if it's being you know anxious about going to school. And I know how hard that is. You know both having been you know a very anxious kid and now being a parent who has, um, anxious kids, you know, it's incredibly painful and hard to watch your child, you know, suffering and feeling nervous. And everything in my body wants to be, I just want to take him out of that situation. So he's not nervous, but what, you know, their therapists, every therapist, you know, I've ever seen says, no, no, you have to let them within reason experience the anxiety and learn that they can overcome it. And that's how they develop resilience. Don't do it for them. That's, that's how you, you know, you'll, you'll helicopter your, your parent, your kid into being kind of a helpless neurotic, you know, 22 year old who can't, Make his own dinner.
0: Right. So, what's the state of your anxiety day? So, you've said you're doing uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, some mindfulness meditation. Are you taking medication? I am. So, I'm, I'm, I'm still really bad at the mindfulness. And I think it's uh, one
1: of these catch 22s that, like, the more you, the, the people who need, who benefit from like mindfulness and yoga and that kind of thing, meditation the most are the ones who are worst at it because, you know, I'm just, my thoughts are always racing. I have a hard time sitting still, but I, I, I'm trying that doing CBT with a really good therapist and that's helped doing exposure therapy, which is really unpleasant, but I think does help. And then, yeah, I am currently on Lexapro, which is a, one of these SSRI medications. And then around the, uh, I take a medication called gabapentin, which was originally a anti-seizure medication and a, and a medication for pain, but has shown some effectiveness in treating anxiety. And then, you know, I've, I, I used to take a lot of benzodiazepines. I've now Try not to. They work incredibly well for me. You know, for me that was always like my magic bullet. If I was, you know, I knew I could always survive if I could ac- access to, you know, enough enough Xanax. The problem is it worked a little too well, and you know the danger is I you know I started to become a little too dependent on it, and you know you, the more of it you take, the more you need to take in order to get the same effect, and it can be very dangerous. And people become dependent on it, so I'm trying not to use that now. And, you know, it's pretty widely prescribed by both psychiatrists and just just family doctors, Yeah, just family doctors, because it is so effective. But there's also, you know, a pretty big school of thought out there that's like, they really shouldn't be prescribing it so wildly because it can be in certain people, very addictive and and dependency forming.
0: And so I imagine it's like, and also you're doing the things like getting enough sleep, exercising, managing stress, reducing that when you can, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know why this, but for me,
1: you know, getting you know regular exercise is it's like night and day and my my wife can even tell you know if at the end of the day I'm on the phone with her she'll be like why don't you go work out and I'm like well how can you?" she's like I can just tell in your voice that you haven't and it's like my personality changes somehow and you know not you know you don't always feel like working out there's some people who just you know don't exercise at all and but for me forcing myself to work out even when I'm don't feel like it you know just is so good for my state of mind and good for my physical health as well and that's true for just about everyone
0: Right. Well, and I imagine if there's someone who's listening to this podcast, they're struggling with anxiety, best advice, go go get help, go talk to somebody. There's, there's things you can do to help manage it so you have a, a flourishing, productive life. Like yourself, like you said, like, yeah, you've, you've struggled with your entire life, but you have a, a good career and you're doing a lot of great things. Yeah. And there, there are a lot of ways you can get help. I mean, there's
1: I'm forgetting what it stands for, but NAMI, it's like the National Alliance of Mental Health initiative or something like that can help you find even if you don't have insurance or you know help you find access to you know individual therapy or group therapy or just resources in your area. If you have anxiety in particular, there's an organization, nonprofit organization called the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, it's the ADAA. And if you go on their website, you know they have lists of therapists in your area, and you you can always just go to your primary care physician and they they can help re- refer you. You know if any any city that has a university will often have like an anxiety disorders clinic. So there's lots of help available out there. Well, Scott, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Uh, You can go to my website. Um, (laughs) I'm blanking on now. uh, Is it scottstossel.com? scottstossel.com, yes. Thank you.
0: I never go to it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, hey, Scott, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, Thanks so much, Brad. I really appreciate it. My guest today was Scott Stossel. He's the author of the book, My Age of Anxiety. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can also check out our show notes at aom.is slash ageofanxiety where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the A One Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can see our podcast archives. We're coming up on 500 episodes here pretty soon. You can see them all there. While you're there, check out our articles we've been. We've got a couple thousand there about just about anything. Depression, how to manage that, personal finances, how to be a better husband, better father. Check it out. And if you haven't done so already, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It just takes one minute and it helps us out a lot. And if you've done that already, please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member if you would think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support until next time this is Brett McCary Remind you not only to listen to the A1 podcast but put what you've heard into action